0: Well, I want to invite you to stand as we read together. First, John, chapter two, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. John records, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his Word. I've tagged this sermon this morning, choose what you will love, choose what you will love. And it seems fitting. I did not plan it this way. It was the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God in the planning of first John that it happens to be on Valentine's Day. So on Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about this idea of choosing what you will love. You know, at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, these words are penned. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, before before you have the opportunity to think that this is a political sermon, let me say it is not. I know there has been a lot of political things happening, but this is not a political sermon. This is merely an illustration. In those words, though, penned by the founding fathers, likely unbeknownst to the writers... There is a theological backing for these ideas, and I say unbeknownst because, as you have heard me say before, I do not believe that this is a Christian nation. I do not believe that it was set up to be a Christian nation. The reason for that is that there is such a thing as a theocracy, a government where God is seen as the supreme ruler and governance flows from a reverence for him. But our founding fathers did not set up a theocracy. They set up a democracy. We can talk more about this later because it's not the point of the illustration. But the point again is that likely unbeknownst to the writers of the Declaration of Independence, there is theological backing to make the claim that all men may pursue life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And what I mean is that life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness are not things that are opposed to God. For example, in John ten ten, Jesus says a thief comes only to kill and destroy. I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. There's the life. Galatians 5, one reminds us, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, that's liberty. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches what we know to be the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Another way that you could translate blessed in the Beatitudes is happy. Happy are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's the pursuit of happiness. So in some regard, these words that were penned by the founding fathers point to things that God wants for his creation, gifts that God gives to his children through his spirit. But the problem, the problem for America, the problem for the founding fathers came immediately in that they thought they thought that they could find those things in the nation itself. They thought that they could find life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the world. And so began in America, though not limited to America, a pursuit of these things through the world, which inevitably perpetuated and resulted in the oppression of others, the disregard for a neighbor and the accumulation of stuff brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that that same pattern continues today. People search for life. They search for happiness. They search for freedom in the things of this world. And as the story so commonly goes, they find themselves lacking. You have probably seen or could very easily Google interviews of people in America who are, quote unquote, living the American dream. They have the money, they have the car, they have the family, they have the house and the white picket fence. And almost without fail, they will tell you that something is missing. You know, just recently, and I did receive permission to share this story as long as I did not use the name. I met with a a rather wealthy individual and by saying a rather wealthy individual, I think that very well may be an understatement. This is a guy that by the American dream standard, he has it all. It is no exaggeration to say that this man has millions in the bank. He has multiple houses. He has vacation homes. I saw the pictures of at least two of his boats. He has the car that when it drives by, you go, dang. He has a beautiful family and he knows it. And I met with him because full disclosure, I wanted him to donate money to this community center. Now, he reached out to me and asked to meet with me. And I asked him a question that I often ask people who reach out to me. And I said, what led you to consider giving to the center? And I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, his answer was a little bit more honest and more candid than what I'm used to. And he said to me, I'm not sure. I just feel like there has to be more to life and all that I have, and I want it all to mean something. Now, for those of you who are aspiring fundraisers, what I said next is not the best strategy for raising funds. But I looked this man in the face and I felt a sense of compassion. And I said to him, oh, brother, you won't find that by giving to the center. And I proceeded to tell him that we were meant for more than this world and what this world offers, no matter how much you gain, it will never satisfy. And being in the midst of first John because of this series, the passage that we just read is the passage that I took him to do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for everything in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of the Father remains forever. You see, what John is communicating to his readers is, is what it looks like to live the true Christian life, a life whose meaning is not grounded in this world. And in essence, he tells them to choose what you will love. The true Christian life is marked By an unending and enduring love for God and not a love for this world. And what John wants his readers to understand, hear me, is that this is a non-negotiable for the Christian. And you see this in the very first verse that we read. And what I want you to take note of is, you know, we've been working through the book of First John. We just now got to chapter two, verse 15. And I want you to note that what we read at the beginning of verse 15 is the first command that has been given in the entire book. The first command that John gives to his readers while trying to encourage them to live the true Christian life. And so what is the command? Well, here is the command. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Of all the commands that God could have given, of all the things he could have communicated in terms of living the true Christian life, where he begins is with this idea that a Christian cannot love this world. That a Christian cannot love the things of this world. See, John understands that to be a Christian by definition is to be Christ-like, and the Christ that we are to be like has a kingdom who is not it is not of this world. Jesus says in John 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. He goes on and says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And in light of this fact, brothers and sisters, all throughout scripture. We are reminded that this world is not where our focus should be. Take for example Romans 12:2. Many of you know it, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Do not be conformed to this world. Colossians 3:2, Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. We are to be set apart from this world, brothers and sisters. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. And by definition, that means we are to be set apart from this world and its What it means is that we do not define ourselves by the things of this world. We define ourselves as being united to a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And this is so significant that it constitutes the first command that God gives through the Apostle John in this entire letter. Now, there is a point that needs some clarity here. Because this command, this verse of Scripture Do not love the world or the things of the world. It has rightly brought some questions in the mind of others. The reason that it has brought many questions, I hope it brought the question to your mind so that this is not a waste of two minutes when I explain it to you. The reason that this has brought many questions is because the same man who penned these words, do not love the world or the things of this world, is the same man who penned John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the question that we have to ask is how do we reconcile John 316 with 1 John two fifteen? That's a good question. How do we reconcile John 316 with God's command not to love the world? Well, to answer this question, I believe... The pastor and theologian, John Stott, gives a very helpful response. And I'm going to read it to you because when people say stuff and they're smarter than you, don't try to say it dumber than them. Amen. So let me just read you what he wrote. He says there are two possible explanations. The first is that the world has a different connotation in these verses. Viewed as people, the world is to be loved. Viewed as an evil system organized under the dominion of Satan and not God, it is not to be loved. But he says this, the second explanation is that it's the verb to love and not the object, the world that has a different shade of meaning. In the one, it is the holy love of redemption. And in the other, it is the selfish love of participation. The first aims to save the sinner's person, the second to share his son. And to be quite honest, I think both explanations are helpful. So first, we, we have to understand that John three sixteen. God's love is focused on the redemption of people. And in 1 John 2:15, the love is focused on evil systems and structures of the fallen world. In John 3:16, we have an example of the holy love of redemption, and in 1 John, we see the selfish love of participation. So in essence, John is not saying that we should not care about the world. Please hear me say that. There's a reason we're not Essenes. If you know who the Essenes were, they lived of old. They isolated themselves in caves. They wanted nothing to do with the world. They thought it was all evil. They never never engaged with the world. That's not what we're called to. We are to care about this world because God cares about this world. Brothers and sisters, that's why he left us here. To care and to shepherd this world to be light in the midst of darkness. He's not saying don't care about the world. But what John is saying is that we should not want to participate in the things of this world that are rebelliously opposed to God. See, but God in his kindness goes on to say more than just give us this command. God is good, that he wants us to understand the reasons why this command is given, the reasons why this command is for our good. And here's the first reason he gives as to why we should not love the world or the things of the world. The first reason is because this world is opposed to God. This world is opposed to God. Look at what he says there in verse 16. For everything in the world, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is not from the father, but it is from the world. And as John writes this, he makes clear the stark reality that the love he is talking about, the love for God is an exclusive love, meaning there is no way you can love God and love the world. They cannot coexist Now, you might think, well, I do love God and I love the world. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that you do not love God. You cannot love God and love the world. That's what God is communicating to us through John. The world and God, they are diametrically opposed to one another. And in this verse, he explains why. He says that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions are from the world. These are the things that this world produces. These are the things that you are claiming to love, and they are not of the father. And so when he speaks of the lust of the flesh, I want to break these down. When he speaks of the lust of the flesh, he is speaking of the desires of the natural man. He is speaking of the things we crave because we are Adam's offspring in this world. This draws my mind to Jeremiah 17, 9. Do you remember it? that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? You see, as human beings, please hear me, we talked about this some last week, but as human beings, our natural bent is not toward God, but away from him. Therefore, it should not be shocking that a world made of sinful people is a world opposed to God the Father. But John not only speaks of this internal opposition, these natural desires that flow out of his, he not only speaks of the lust of the flesh, but he also draws our attention to the external opposition to God produced by the world. So our desires are opposed to God in the natural man and then we look out at a world and we see things that are opposed to God. That are produced by the world. He speaks of the lust of the eyes. And I love how what one commentator notes about this second opposition to God, the lust of the eyes. He says, this second seems to indicate temptations which assault us not from within, but from without through our eyes. This is the tendency, listen to this, to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real values. He goes on, he says, Eve's Eve's view of the forbid, forbidden fruit as pleasing to the eye. Achan's covetous sight among the spoil of a beautiful robe of Babylon. And David's lustful looking after Bathsheba as she bathes are obvious examples. It will include, listen to this, the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. I like that last line. The love of beauty divorced from the love of Goodness. And if that is not an accurate description of the lust of the eyes, I don't know what is. It is seeing something as beautiful and desirable and attractive while failing to examine if it is good. Young man, young woman, do you know why you look at that stranger walking down the street and your mind wanders to a place of lust? Because you love beauty without a thought of goodness. Brother and sister, do you know why you feel so trapped by the images on your computer screen? Do you know why the phone in your hand seems like a handcuff to lust? Because you love beauty without a thought of goodness. And I want you to hear me say this. God in his goodness designed us to be a people who delight in beauty. My wife's fine, okay? She's beautiful. I see it. I love it. I savor it. But when we delight in beauty and neglect goodness, we are revealing our love for this world rather than a love for God. But finally, he mentions the pride in one's possessions. This should not be surprising to us. This, for many, is the pinnacle of the American dream, is it not? How much stuff can I get? And then once I have it, let me base my worth and my value based off of the things that I have. This is so prevalent in our society that there are even even marketing practices that have picked up on this. There is a strategy in marketing called emotional marketing. Have you ever heard of it? And in emotional marketing, what they do is they try to sell you something by playing off of your emotions. But one thing that they have noticed Is that they have the most successful response if they can elicit an emotion of fear, but specifically a fear that you are less than and missing out if you don't have this particular thing. And it works, it works. And it works because this world produces a pride in one's possessions, a sense of value based on what we do or do not possess in this world. I know it works, but they've gotten me with it. I don't need the iPhone 73. I don't need it. Mine works fine, but I feel like I'm missing out if I don't have it. I feel like I'm less than. I ain't even gonna talk about you, you Android users, okay? (laughs) I struck a nerve there. I apologize. It works because we will often derive our sense of value and worth off of the things that we have. This is pride in one's possession. Dr. Van Ness notes about the pride in one's possessions. He says what is in view here is is not pride generally, but the vaunted sense of self-importance derived from one's possession, position or prestige. Now one thing that Van Nest understands in that description that he gave is that a pride in one's possessions can extend beyond physical possessions and include perceived power and position and prestige. So let me put it another way: You are not like Jesus. You are not showing a love for God because you don't boast in your physical possessions if all the while you are fighting to maintain the sense of power that you think you have. Whether that be because of your ethnicity, whether it be political, whether it be your platform. So I'm going to put it as plainly as I can with an example that we see prevalent in our society. This is the reason that white supremacy is satanic and demonic to its core. Because it is a pride in one's possession, in a possession of power. This is why when individuals fight to maintain that supremacy, they are proving themselves to be a lover of this world and not a lover of God. You cannot have both. God is not a disengaged king who will tolerate your loyalty to a rival kingdom. Jesus is not a groom who will allow his bride to play the harlot. You cannot have both. You cannot love this world and love God, dear brother and sister. They are opposed to one another. And I want you to hear me, though God is sovereign, though he sits on his throne for a time, he has allowed Satan to have dominion over this world and what this world produces is opposed to God. John's going to make this very same claim a few chapters later in 1 John 5, 19, where he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The world is opposed to God. But that's not the only reason that John gives for why we should refrain from loving the world and the things of this world. Because not only is this world opposed to God, but the second reason he gives is that this world is passing away. This world is passing away. Look at the beginning of verse 17. He says, and the world with its lust is passing away. You see, what John is trying to help his readers to understand is that any satisfaction, any delight, any pleasure that is derived from the things of this world will not last. They will never truly satisfy. They are fleeting. They are fickle. And when this world comes to an end or when we come to the end of this world, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in our possessions, they will not satisfy us into eternity. See, John wants his readers to understand that a love for this world, it'll never satisfy. The pleasures of this world are fleeting. They will never satisfy. And brothers and sisters, I think That if we are honest, everyone in this room can testify to the truth of that. That the pleasures of this world do not satisfy long term. Every one of us can testify to the fact that this world will never fully satisfy. Yes, it will satisfy for an instant, but it will not last. Many men and women have found themselves addicted to substances, addicted to pornography, addicted to lust, addicted to relationships, addicted, addicted to popularity, addicted to the accumulation of stuff, not because it does not satisfy. It does, but only for a moment. It is an insufficient satisfaction, which is why an addiction develops, because you need more and more and more and more and more and no matter how much more you get you still feel broken and empty you have to run back for more and more and more and yet the more you pursue the emptier you feel and this is not a unique experience not unique to the american experience This is not just limited to the pursuit of the American dream. This has been the pattern of humanity since Adam and Eve, where we have pursued satisfaction in lesser things. We have sought delight in lesser things. We have pursued pleasure in lesser things. You've heard me quote this before, but it is such a beautiful biblical picture of what we're talking about. Here is Jeremiah 2 13, where God says my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, which cannot hold water. And as I always say, when I quote that God doesn't say that you can't put water into the broken system cisterns, you can't. The problem is the crack, the broken, it always leaks out. It always leaves you wanting more. And all the while here is the spring of living water. God himself who says, come and drink and never thirst again. And we choose over and over the lesser satisfaction. It is not new to us in America. It's the pattern of humanity. We settle for less. And why is that? When when I was writing this, that was the question that just kept coming. to mind. Why is it that we settle for less? Well, perhaps it is because we fail to realize that we were made for more than this world. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this paragraph that I believe offers incredible insights to that reality that we were made for more than this world. Listen to what he writes. He says, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. But listen to what he says. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing and if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. If I find in my de- myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This world, brothers and sisters, is not meant to satisfy you. It's not meant to satisfy. But this leads to the final reason John gives as to why we should not love this world. The third reason he gives is that there is something better. Brothers and sisters, there is something better. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, in the world with its lust is passing away. Here it is. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. And we get a fuller understanding of what is being said here when we consider John 640 alongside of this. And in John 640, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see what God desires of us is that we would see him as beautiful. That we would find true satisfaction in him and him alone, that we would hold fast to what he has done for us in Christ and ultimately that our love for him would replace any love we might feel for this world and the promise, brothers and sisters, the promise is that we will dwell with him forever. The promise is that we will one day live in the world we were made for. Our satisfaction and our longing will be complete as we dwell forever with the spring of living water. There is something better than this world. Now, let me tie this back into this overall idea of the true Christian life. Why does John say all of this? Why is John pushing so hard for a love for God and not a love for the world in the midst of the overarching context of living the true Christian life? Well, here's why. Because this belief, this love of God, this understanding that there is something better, it will push us to live the true Christian life here and now. It will push us to be faithful in the midst of a world that is dying dominated by by darkness, a love for God changes how we live. Hear me, a love for God changes how we live. Even as I say that I'm reminded this this February month, this month where we recognize and reflect on the history and legacy of black image bearers, I'm reminded of the testimony of those who loved God and this love compelled them to, to be light in the midst of a dark world. I'm reminded of Harriet Tubman, born enslaved in Maryland, suffering throughout her childhood at the hands of wicked men. And one day, staring her slave masters in the eye, she resolved that she would be free or she would be dead, but she would be a slave to no man. And she escaped her slavery, but her love for God and love for others compelled her to rescue others. She dedicated her life to freeing slaves from their captivity. And by her own recollection, she declared, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. And when asked why, listen to this. And when asked how, Harriet Tubman responded, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Her love for God changed how she lived. I'm reminded of Lemuel Hayes. A black man abandoned as a child and became a slave. Yet he was drawn even as a child to the word of God. And he 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 dove in deep and he pursued this God and he came to believe that his God loved him and he loved his God. This led him to be the first African-American or African-American ordained in this country. And he was willing to serve God no matter what the cost. His first pastorate was to an all white congregation where he faithfully served for two years until their racism and their prejudice drove him out. But he was undeterred. He spent the next 30 years preaching to the marginalized and the forgotten in Virginia while contending for the sinfulness of slavery. And even in his death, he is a light to a dark world as his tombstone to this day reads. Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity, trusting wholly in the merits of Christ for salvation. In the full belief of the great doctrines he preached while on earth, he invites his children and all who read this to trust their eternal interest in the same foundation. His love for God changed how he lived. I'm reminded of Lot Carey, born in 1780 in Virginia. He heard the gospel and believed at the age of 27. And six years later, he purchased his freedom and spent his life making much of the gospel. He preached in America before hearing God's call for him to go to Africa with the gospel. He led the first Baptist missionaries into Africa to proclaim the gospel. Kerry is noted as saying, I have counted the cost and have sacrificed all my worldly possessions to this undertaking. I am prepared to meet imprisonment or even death in carrying out the purposes of my heart. His love for God changed how he lived. It changed how he lived. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know. Here this morning that if you want to live the true Christian life, if you want to say like the early church father Ignatius, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but to actually be one. It will require a real and unending love for God. But I want you to know this morning that this love is not something that you can muster up on your own. It is not something that you can will yourself to. A genuine love for God flows out of an understanding of belief, independence on the unwavering love of God for you. We love because he first loved us. And what a love it is. It is a love that existed as God looked out as far as his eye could see and there was nothing. It is a love that drove him to open his mouth and the planets formed and the stars were were flung into the sky. It is a love that led him to reach down into his creation and fashion from the dust of the ground a man and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. It is a love that welcomed Adam and Eve into his presence where God walked with them and he talked with them. It is a love that did not falter when his creation rebelled against him and declared we do not need you it is a love that led god to offer the promise that though i did not cause this i will fix it it is a love that restrains god's hand of judgment as his people continue to rebel century after century and it is a love made flesh When we could not get to God, love came down. It is a love that is perfectly known in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a love that walked with us, that wept with us, that laughed with us and lived among us. It is a love that propelled the son of God to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sin. It is a love that substituted the perfect son of God in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. It is a love hung high. It is a love stretched wide as the perfect son of man breathed his the last breath that we might breathe life again and it is a love victorious as three days later on Sunday morning Jesus walked out of that grave. It is a love that invited us into a kingdom that is not of this world. We love because he first loved us. A love made known in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what John is asking us to consider is the same song beautifully sung in the old spirituals by our African-American brothers and sisters. Is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? Is there anybody here who loves my Lord? I want to know if you love my Jesus. I want to know if you love my Lord. This world's a wilderness of woe. So let us all to glory go. Is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? Is there anybody here who loves my Lord? I want to know if you love my Jesus. I want to know if you love my Lord. When I was blind and could not see King Jesus brought the light to me. Is there anybody here who loves my Jesus, is there anybody here who loves my Lord? I want to know if you love my Jesus. I want to know if you love my Lord. When every star refused to shine, I know the King Jesus will be mine. Is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? Is there anybody here who loves my Lord? I want to know if you love my Jesus. I want to know. If you love my Lord and I would be unfaithful to this pulpit and the God I serve, if I did not put the expectation before you this morning, before you walk out of these doors to a world that is fighting for your attention and your affection, before you dare step out, choose what you will love. Praise God and amen.